My, 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 my. Doing church this morning. Well, I believe the Lord loves that. I believe He loves when we lift up our voices and rejoice in His presence. Magnify the name of the Lord together. Let's exalt Him. He loves that. That's, that's who our God is. He loves to be in the center of the praise of His people. And so uh, that's the kind of church that um, I believe God says, let's take note of that church there. That's one I want to work with. It's the kind of church we want to be. Well, um, from the first time our mother wrapped us tightly in swaddling clothes in a blanket to simulate the womb, I suppose, to those carried by little kids to reduce anxiety, we've been conditioned to seek security through external behavior and props. Isn't that true? I think it's uh, sort of in us and has been ingrained in us, and it's something in our natural makeup. Now, psychology experts notwithstanding, I suppose that external props are no big deal unless it all gets pathologically debilitating. But there is grave danger in seeking to take charge of our soul's security through physical props. Religious security blankets, we'll call them. In fact, I think you'll agree with me that Outside of Christianity, most of the world's religions, if not all of the world's religions, are predicated on the idea of soul security blankets. The idea of external props somehow making us right before God. You think about all the great world religions, and that fundamentally is the uh, modus operandi for those religions. If you practice these behaviors, in other words the ones that are laid down by the various religions, your soul is secure. In fact, um, these are really just sacred versions of Linus's security blanket. Tragically, some people try to practice Christianity the way of the great world religions, placating They're placated by their religious security blankets and their paraphernalia, as opposed to the power of Christ. Uh, In fact, Paul wrote about it in the book of Colossians when he gave these phrases, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. He says, these are all the things that you are promoting to each other as if somehow you can gain better standing before God. He says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 22, these are human commands and teachings. And we have fallen prey to this in evangelicalism in most of our backgrounds whether it be costuming. I grew up in the uh, southwestern, the KW Guelph area, big Mennonite, old order Mennonite area, whether it's costuming or anything just because it's the old way or styles of religious practice or, or personal discipline strategies. We have employed all of these things thinking that somehow through these security blankets, our souls will be right before God. So let me ask you a question this morning, because the Apostle Paul continues to war against this thinking and its devastating effects on the gospel 
in Galatians chapter 4. So are you working, you personally working at, false, at a false sense of spiritual security, or are you truly powered by Christ? Now, I know what you want. We all want to say, well, of course, I'm truly powered by Christ. That's, that's the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? Yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. And Paul, the Apostle Paul begins this part of his letter by saying, and setting a tone for how emotionally urgent this was, he says, I plead with you. He's been writing, the Apostle Paul in the letter, the epistle to the Galatians, has been for the first three chapters, first actually three and a half chapters, in, well into chapter four, delivering to them solid doctrine of salvation and what it really means to have Christ. And he almost comes to the point in his letter where he thinks, man, I don't want this to be an intellectual exercise. I don't want this just to be a, a dump load of knowledge. And I don't want it to be sterile of emotion. I want them all to know. I want everybody who, who's reading this letter in Galatia to know how urgently I write this, how, how this matters. This is not, it's not a sort of an intramural discussion you have with some friends and say, wasn't it nice what Paul wrote and don't do anything about it? He says, this is life and death. I'm pleading with you pastorally, he says. Uh, you need to see my heart. You're going to see this in a few minutes, how, how much this matters. And I prayed to the Lord as I was working through this and studying it and praying this morning. I prayed to the Lord that, that he would help me to give that same kind of pastoral reality to this and, and emotionally plead with you and urge you not to take this as some interesting um, uh, exchange of information, but to really to, to embrace this in your heart and understand how important this is, how key this is to living the victorious Christian life. So with that in mind, would you look with me at Galatians chapter 4, verse 12. I plead with you, sets the tone here. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Um, I want to pause here for a second, just give a parenthetical thought before we move forward. Um, this is so significant for us as we, as we try to think about how God directs our lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul was not really scheduled to deliver the gospel to Galatia. He was on his way somewhere else and obviously acquired a really grave illness and, and was stranded or end up being stranded in the, among the people of Galatia. And so wherever Paul went, the gospel came with him and he delivered the gospel to them in his ill, very sick state, delivered the gospel to them. People got saved. A church started up. And, and that's an amazing thing that God did. And, and so we need to understand that, that uh, sometimes we think, well, I'm really low or I'm really ill or things aren't going very well for me. I'm sure God can't make my life very fruitful. Nothing could be further from the truth. It was at this moment when Paul was really at one of his lowest moments of life, physically speaking, that, that the, our great God uh, used that particular situation to bring to the, to the people an awareness of the gospel. And what was quite amazing is, it says in the text, that these people didn't scorn him or, or resist him or, or, or look down upon him and... And of course, nor, it's a normal human reaction 
to think, well, here's someone representing apparently the great God of heaven. He comes limping into town. He's pathetic looking and, and, uh, and he's sickening. And uh, surely he's not being blessed by God. And he says, you didn't receive me that way. And that's our tendency to think, well, if things aren't going right for that person, God must surely be mad at them. Or, or if my life takes a turn, you know, I'm thinking, well, God must be really mad at me. No, nothing would be further from the truth. Paul acquired a physical illness because we are physical and we are weak and we need God. And in our weakness or in our strength, it doesn't matter to God. He can use us in whatever situation or whatever state we're in, whatever circumstance we end up being in. God, by his power, and this sets the tone for where we're going with this, God, by his power, overcomes anything that's going on in your life to show forth his glory and his power. And so Paul, uh, he's setting this all, all up here. Instead, he says, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God and as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Some people think that um, Paul somehow acquired like a serious eye infection or others say malaria or he had a variety of things, but because they were willing to tear out their eyes and give it to him, some people are saying, well, it must have been something really, really gross with his eyes, you know, and there's nothing, it's, it's gross when the eyes are really in trouble, you know, and here he's speaking to them and they're like, here, take my eye, you know, do something. But anyway, so he says, you would have given me your eyes. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people, the ones who are trying to steal your hearts away, he's talking about, those Judaizers, are zealous to win you over. But not for good, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, Provided the purpose is good. And to be so always and not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law. Are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. My goodness, the Jews would have been freaking out as they're reading this letter. So insulted. Because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? 
Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. That's the issue that has Paul so urgently pleading with them. See it again? The person, the, the, for the slave woman's son will never share the Share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. This is about your eternal inheritance, Paul says. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This is the word of God. Father, I pray that you would enable me, by the power of your spirit, to deliver the truth Nothing but the truth, exactly what you want your people here to hear, to know, and to embrace in their lives, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would take away every barrier and obstacle to us hearing you clearly. I pray, Father, that we would set aside every prejudice, every previous custom, every tradition, every denominational reality, and I pray that we would listen with a heart focused on the scriptures. I pray, Lord, that we would listen to the very words of God. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would lead us into truth and set us free by your truth. And I pray, Lord, that none of us would continue to limp along without embracing the power of Christ in our lives. So, Father, I ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ who died so that we might have this power in our lives so that we might please living God and praise you and worship you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to plead with you this morning. I really do. I have such a burden for you to get this right in your life. I'm burdened in my own life. This makes all the difference in the world. I, I want to share with you, first of all, what I see in the text about signs that there's trouble in Heartland. It really starts in verse 15, I think, when he asks the question, what has happened to your joy? I think one of the first evidences that there is spiritual trouble in our life is our joy is lost. Now, this word joy can be translated blessing or contentment or fulfillment. This is not about giddy happiness. This is about a settled sense That I have God and he has me and God is sovereign over all the universe and over my circumstances and whatever is happening to me, I have a relationship with the living God. He loves me and I love him. That's what it means, this consistent, constant joy that supersedes circumstances. It's the joy of the Lord. It's the joy that only Christ can give. It's the joy that every believer has because he is remaining or abiding in Christ. It's Christ's joy. It's the joy of being rescued from all that other stuff that was burdening you down. Uh, The stuff that you couldn't do well enough. You could never gain enough approval. You could never please God. It's all that stuff. It's all been taken away and it's been replaced with the love of God. It's that joy. Now, the only possible reason that you lose that joy is that somehow you attached joy to the stuff that you used to do to try and please God. And people tend toward that. 
They find joy in certain practice. They find joy in a certain style. They find joy in a certain time or place. You've hitched your wagon to the wrong train. This joy is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. It supersedes our circumstances or the date on the calendar. And so this is what he's talking about here. He's saying, what in the world? Why are you crusty and ornery and grouchy and critical? You're God's people. There's no place for that in God's people. You ever met any crusty, grouchy, ornery, crotchety, critical? I could go on and on, Christians. It's like, what's with that? You've been saved, man. Aren't you glad you're saved? I mean, come on. You've been, you've been rescued from eternal damnation. You've been saved from your sins. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been set in high places with Jesus Christ. You're a co-heir with Christ. You'll reign with him forever. What in the world are you crotchety, critical, ornery, ugly, and nasty about? And he's saying, hey, man, this is, this is not in keeping with the people of Jesus Christ. He says, you're, what, why are you so grouchy and angry? You, you didn't start out that way. I think, he says, I think maybe you were, you were drinking Kool-Aid and you thought you were drinking juice, the, the 100% real stuff. I think you were eating jelly beans and you thought you were taking vitamins. And none of this stuff was working for you. And now you're just ugly, crotchety, and angry. It's pastoral, isn't it? It's Paul. Paul didn't pull any punches. So now he says, what, ha- what is happening is, you, you can't stand me. You can't stand the person to whom you would have given your right arm. You ever found yourself in a moment? I'm not giving a personal biography here or anything, but you ever found yourself in a moment where you're just really angry when you see somebody who's a really excited, happy Christian? You're like, I can't stand that person. Why are they so happy and jumping around and putting their hands up and singing and enjoying all that? I'm not happy. I'm crotchety, critical, ornery, and angry. And, and he says here, um, the natural tendency is, you know, I, I'm, I'm just in the joy of the Lord. Here's Paul. Like, he was, went through this horrible illness, he was, and he was demonstrating the joy of the Lord. Paul's overjoyed. He's the overjoyed spiritual guy. The guy that, that they loved so much, even through his inconvenience and taxing illness upon them. They still loved him. They loved him at his worst. And now, he's recovered physically. And they don't like him anymore. Have you personally experienced that? You've dramatically shifted to be against a brother or a sister you formerly loved. And not because they've done anything, they've not done any sin against you. Not that that gives you the right to be ornery or crotchety or nasty or anything. You can't even put your finger on it. But you're just, you're just angry with happy Christians. Joyful Christians. Christians who are confident. They're settled in their faith. It's a sign there might be trouble in Heartland. He says um, at, the, at the end there of that section 15, 16, have I now become your enemy? I mean, we moved from where you would have plucked your eye out and given it to me to now I'm your enemy. And it says over in the text that the 
people of the slave woman persecute the people who are free. You persecuting a person who tells you the truth? Sometimes our whole spiritual house of cards comes collapsing down because the truth we're being told by someone isn't what we want true to be. He said, I'm, I'm the same guy who was in personal agony about the possibility that the gospel might be lost on you. That's what he says down here in verse 19 and 20. He says, I'm again in the pains of childbirth. Now, I'm trying to, I'm trying to envision in my, in my own mind a guy writing a letter to anybody and telling them that. What in the world does Paul know about the pains of childbirth? So I'm not going to pretend to stand here and tell you that I know anything about that because I don't want the ladies to pick up hymn books and start firing them at me. You know what I'm saying? I think, though, Paul here has a pretty good idea that there ain't no pain like that pain. And he says, I want you to know pastorally how much this matters to me. I am in the worst kind of pain right now. He says, I want you to think of the most unimaginable or imaginable pain. I guess the ladies can imagine it. that pain. And he says, here's why I'm upset. He says, I'm afraid, and he uses the very word about Christ being formed in you. He uses the word for fetus. He said, I am concerned that the gospel is going to miscarry. He said, I want you to know, I want you to think like a a woman. I want you to think like a mom who's, who's been like nine months giving all she has to this baby. And getting right down to the end of it and and going through all of the birth pains and all of that only to stillbirth. I want you to think like that, Paul says. I want you to think of that kind of pain. Because he says that's where we're at if we don't get this right. You know, I've, I've had believers say to me, I know what the Word of God says, but... Or, w- maybe worse, I don't care what the Word of God says. I'm going to do this. I, I've had some reports come back that people say, well, when you ask him something, when you, when you kind of ask him something and stuff like that, he just answers you back with Bible stuff. What good is that? If you're persecuting a person who tells you the truth, there might be trouble in Heartland. So I want to give you the scoop this morning from the scriptural soul scan that we find right here, okay? I want to give you five things that I think I can pull out here that are really important for us to see because I want you to, to know that you can't do Christianity if Christ is practically beside the point. If you don't hear me at all, if you don't hear anything else I really share with you, although I really want you to hear everything else that's God's word, you can't do New Testament Christianity if Jesus Christ is practically beside the point. You understand what I'm saying? That you are trying to live Christianity yourselves, and in fact, Jesus is really just off in the wing. It really doesn't matter about Christ. That's what he's talking about to the Galatians here. He says, the Judaizers, 
they're, they're basically saying, oh yeah, I know Paul teaches this Jesus thing and all of that. Fine, whatever, embrace Jesus, I don't care. But you've got to come back and you've got to do all of the Jewish rituals and ceremonies. You've got to get circumcised and all of that stuff. And Paul's basically saying, that makes Jesus Christ beside the point. It means he died on the cross for nothing. It, it means you are ignoring what you have in Christ. And you can't practice New Testament Christianity like you practice Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or selfism or naturalism. And that's what you're trying to do. This is what these guys are trying to pull you away to. They're, they're zealous to pull you away from, from my teaching, Paul says. So let's diagnose all over again. Just make sure. I, I know we've gone over this terrain a lot, but I'm telling you, Paul went over it a lot. I'm taking you through the text. He seemed to think, the Holy Spirit seemed to think, we've got to keep rolling over and over this because we're not getting it. Here's what Saved 101 is all about. You left your attachment to self-energized law-keeping and became connected to Christ. When you got saved, when you said yes to Jesus Christ, when you embraced salvation, you said no to all of that stuff. You said no to the self-effort of law-keeping, moral-keeping, what you tried to do in your own strength, and you said yes to Jesus Christ. You left that, that trying to be good. And Paul says, if, if anybody knows what I'm, what I'm talking about, Apostle, the Apostle Paul says, I know. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I, I, I know all of this stuff. I did all this stuff. I was at the top of my class on keeping the law. I was there. I, I kept all the rituals. I kept all the ceremonies. I thought it was pleasing God. And I found out nothing could be further from the truth. He says, I count, what, what I used to count as gain, I now count as loss for the... Uh, the amazing reality of having knowing Christ. I count that all as dung. Does I know about this? He says, that's why he says, so become like me, for I became like you. I got rid of all of that stuff and embraced Jesus Christ because I knew that stuff couldn't help me. I finally came to my senses. God opened up my mind and my heart and I realized what I was doing. Let me review with you once, once again, once more about the law. The law tells you what is right, but it grants you no power to do it. The law tells you what's wrong, but no power to forgive it or not do it. The law tells you what will lead to death, but has no power to save you. The law can tell you what God is like, but cannot give you life. The law can tell you that something is desperately broken, but cannot heal you so that you can make choices from healed wholeness rather than brokenness. So we medicate our brokenness with our sin instead of turning in wholeness to Christ who has made us whole. The law is no longer my master, Paul says. Christ is my Lord. And so he wants them to know in the end of verse 12, that you've not done me any wrong. Self-effort is abandoning God in your life. He says, look, at, I, 
I, I'm not saying this because, you know, I'm afraid that these people are stealing you away from me and I wanted to have a great grand church and I wanted a big webnet audience and I wanted to have lots of people reading my books and all of that stuff. Not, this was never about me. I'm not jealous for you as as if you should think I'm wonderful, I'm great, I'm the rock star. This isn't what this is all about. You've done nothing. It's not about me. What you are doing is abandoning God in your life. Do you understand that? If you want to go back and you want to buy self-discipline, do whatever religious things you want to do by your own strength and your own will, you are making God beside the point in your life. You are abandoning God. And that's what matters, he says. That's the urgent issue here. That's what what keeps him up at night. Nothing else matters to the Apostle Paul. You're unhooking yourself from the power cord. Let me try and illustrate it. You seen our new sign out there? Is that cool or what? Uh, you know, people, honestly, this is like people around the community who don't come to our church are saying to me, hey, cool sign. Like, they're noticing our church, you know. My neighbor, I came home the other day, and he says, congratulations on the sign. I'm like, what? <laughs> they are looking. They are watching. They are noticing. Anyway, that's beside the point. I want you to know that as cool as that sign is, it's not operating on full power. That baby can really dazzle and dance. And it's not right now. It's like low amperage, and we got to juice that thing up. What you need to know, and you probably don't know, is that it's only running on dark light mode. In other words, it's running on the mode that, that it, it, shuts, it, it moves down to when the sun goes down and it's dark outside. So it's just running on that mode so that when the sun comes up and the bright sun is shining on it, it's a little bit washed out. You're, you might drive by and say, man, you know what? That thing is not all that, that great shakes. But baby, when we amperage that thing up, it's going to dazzle in the sun. Now, this is, where I, this is the illustration. Paul is saying, many of you are running in dark mode. He says, when you're around really wicked people, okay, so you kind of look all right because you're a bit religious. But when you are in the light of the glory of God, you are fading fast because you are not plugged into the power. You're not showing forth the power of God. You're lapsing into, into the old, old ways of, of trying to discipline yourself. You're not plugging into Christ. Now crank up the amperage, he says. I'm going to tell you how to do that at the very end. But we need to build Paul's case here first about what's going wrong. He says, if you chase away truth-tellers in your life, you will have nothing left but the same old flawed flesh. Am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? I'm not sure if you all know this. I think you do, though. That parents, friends, pastors, teachers are endangered species. You know that we are. Parents, pastors, friends, teachers, you're endangered species. I'm going to tell you why. We are living in an age, and I think you'll agree with me, where political correctness is of a higher value than truth. Would you agree? And it's taken over, like it's getting even worse and worse. In other words, it's becoming socially illegal to tell each other the truth. You know that's true. Now, there are a lot of ways, there are a lot of reasons why truth-tellers are becoming an endangered species. As far as parents go, Kids don't want to hear the truth. They don't want you to tell them the way it is. And as and, and far as friends go, basically, people don't want to be told that the way they're living is wrong. 
pastors, teachers, whoever you are, if you're bringing truth and you're bringing it to people, you better be bold and courageous and thick-skinned and and willing to to move forward in the truth regardless because people don't want to hear the truth. And Paul says, what, am I becoming your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Now you all think about it. There's only one reason that anybody in the world would tell anybody else the truth. There's only one reason why parents would tell their kids the truth. Or friends will tell their friends the truth. Or pastors will tell their people the truth. Or teachers will tell those they teach the truth. There's only one reason they would do that. Because they love the people they're talking to. There's no other reason. Because it doesn't win friends. Paul says, look, I'm giving you the ultimate example of how much I love you and care for you. How much God loves you. That God would reveal himself to you. And he would give you the truth. And now you're reverting back to the false things, the things that can't help you, the things that can't strengthen you, the things that aren't true. So what are we to do? Let people go to hell? And that's the seriousness of this. In Galatians 5.21, for those of you who are timid or lack boldness or courage about the truth, I wouldn't want to hurt their sensitivities. Come on. I warn you, he says in 521, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not playing around stuff. This is not debating theories. This is about life and death. This is about eternal destination. Just think a little bit about eternity and what it is and how long it is. And it'll give you just a sense of how important all this stuff is. The reason people tell you the truth, the reason God is telling you the truth about this is you need something powerful to change you, which Satan, by the way, is zealous to rob you of. I suspect not many of you in here are being attempted to be pulled away by some people who are in some other great religion in the world, but that may be the case. They may be pulling strongly in your life, trying to to debate you away from Christianity. That's what was happening here. The Judaizers were trying to take these people away from their their, uh, embracing of the gospel. So you may say, well, I don't really, um, I'm not really uh, connecting with this because nobody's really trying to pull me away from Christianity. I want you to know something. 24-7-365, Satan is zealously trying to pull you away from Christianity. He never, ever lets up. Not ever. Not for a moment. He's always seeking to pull your heart away. Listen, he, he, if, if, he can't get you, if he can't keep you away from coming to church, he can keep you unplugged from the power of Christ. Maybe he can't keep you from keeping a few rules that you find easy to keep. But he can keep you from being changed by the transforming work of Jesus Christ. If you let him. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. And how does Satan do it? He courts your natural instincts, my natural instincts, all over again. And what are those natural instincts? We scream for legalism. That's human nature. Why why do you think the other world religions, particularly Islam, is growing? 
It's a legalistic religion. You only have to keep a few rules. There's a few things you just need to do. Five, in fact. Although Mecca, they overlook. Because most people can't get there. So often Christians say, well, just please, just, just tell me, give me a list. Give me a, Rick, could you just give me a list of ten things? Do this, don't do that, but most of our lists are always don't. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, right? Isn't that what Paul said? Those are our lists. Just give me those and I'll be a really good Christian. Because I can keep about ten things. Okay. You asked for it. I'll give you a list. Stop drinking. Stop taking drugs. Stop watching pornography. Stop being enraged every time somebody cuts you off in the 401. Stop putting other things before God. Stop your selfishness. Stop your jealousy. Now, have I missed anyone? Go ahead. Go ahead in your own strength and stop any of that. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what he's writing here. You want to go back to that? You want to go back to Judaism? You want to go back to trying to to power your own life by your own strength? We we can't handle this by some sort of self-discipline and external behavior. This requires deep change that only Jesus Christ can bring. Only the power of God can rescue us from our sin and from ourselves and change our lives and form Christ in us. You can't form Christ yourself. Listen, if you trust in the flesh to change the flesh, you'll be overpowered by what was always killing you in the first place. How ridiculous. You know, just our own human logic. If it wasn't even the Bible, our own logic should teach us this, that flesh can't fix flesh. You've been doing that since you made a mess on the schoolyard when you were a little kid. You've been trying to fix things yourself. You've been trying to hide things from your parents. You've been trying to get your, your life right on your own. Has any of that ever worked? It's never worked. What um, you need to rely on is God as Lord to change you. And you'll be set free by the power of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, some of us think that verse just simply means, isn't that great? Christ in us, the hope of heaven. Hooray! When I get there, God's going to fix me. So in the meantime, I can be crotchety and ornery and angry and critical and all that, just driving people crazy. Because Christ in me, the hope of glory, it'll all be good someday in heaven. There's an egg floating down here all of a sudden. It'll all be good for me. No, no, this, this Christ in you and in me, the hope of glory, means now. It means the hope of the glorious image of Jesus Christ residing in me now and adorning my life now so that everyone around me is seeing and experiencing the reality of Christ being formed in me. That's the hope of glory. Paul says, you're not getting that. You're missing that. Christ in me. The hope of glory. To be a supernatural life, not a legal one. To be centered on Christ, not centered on a person. To be informed and shaped by the truths of Scripture, 
not by the traditions of our denomination. Test yourself. What bothers you more? When we step outside of a custom or when we bypass Jesus Christ? It appears that they must have written him and said, Paul, look it, we hear you, but we're just going back to the old ways, back to Abraham, our father. You know, you taught us about Abraham being the children of faith and all that. He says, oh, you want to go back to Abraham? Good, let's go back to Abraham. This was a, a brilliant Holy Spirit moment. I mean, when the Apostle Paul came up with this, and he didn't come up with it, the Holy Spirit came up with it, and he gives this argument back, it was, a sh- it was sheer genius. He says, okay, let's go back to Abraham. He says, Abraham lived his life and made decisions about the way things should go on the basis of God's word to him. And he says, one of them was the right way and the other was absolutely the wrong way. And he says, uh, when Abraham and Sarah got together and decided that somehow the promise of God that they would have a child was too delayed, they decided to connive and manipulate and make God beside the point and came up with the idea that Abraham should father a child through Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman. And he says to them, now how do you think that worked out? Why don't you ask the soldiers who lost their life in Afghanistan yesterday how that worked out? He says the right way was to trust the word of God and the power of God to deliver on the promises of God that they would have a child through Sarah, the child of promise, the child not given by the, in the ordinary way, but by the extraordinary way of the power of God. Now, he says, what you're trying to do is live like Ishmael when God has given to you Isaac. You're trying to live in the ordinary way, the self-discipline, external behavior way, when God has given you the power way, the extraordinary way, his great power in you. So do you want to keep living like a slave, he says? Because here's the danger. This isn't just intramural stuff. If you live like the slave, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. You were born again to be free. So let me uh, wind this up by saying this to you. Stop believing that keeping religious traditions or customs or human strategies, or books, or sermons, or even determination will change you and strengthen your heart. It will not. And the starting point is, don't think any of that will save you. It will not. It will not save you. It will not grow you. It will not put you in right stead before God. Jesus gave us the strategy. Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Who knows what it is? You know. Oh, you know. You've heard it 7,000 times. And you're going to say, 
we sat through a whole sermon to hear this? Yep. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these hangs all the law. It's sheer God-driven brilliance. Think about it. You're trying all this and trying all that, working so hard, setting New Year's resolutions. Every Sunday you set a new resolution. And all along, Jesus Christ had moved into your heart with the love of God and said in turn, all you need to do is turn around and love me with everything you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's so profound. I, you know, I, I've, I thought about this this week. I prayed about this. I was thinking about this. I got up this morning, and I thought, I'm wondering if there's ever even been one minute in my life where I actually loved the Lord that much. That's the issue. So I, I, I've been getting up these mornings now and saying, Lord, today I just want to love you with all my heart. I'm so convinced that it's the antidote. I'm so convinced that it's the antithesis of all of this. I'm so convinced that if we love the Lord our God, I mean, if you're honest with yourself, really, are you there? Do you love God that much? Because if you did, do you think sin would taste any good to you? Would looking at something that God doesn't want to look at even interest you? Would, would not your desires so change? Would not sin and self and all of that disappear? And would not Christ be formed in you? This is the power of Christ. The power of his love in us. That we turn around and give back to him and love him with everything we have. With every fiber in our body. That's what's setting my heart on fire. That's my urgent plea for Calvary Baptist Church. That's my plea for you as God's people. There is no other way. There's, I, can't, I have nothing else to give you. I can only give you the truth of this, that if you love him with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength and all of your soul and you love your neighbor as yourself, the Apostle Paul won't be having this discussion with you. He won't be having it with me. Sin will lose its hold. I'm so concerned that people are just sampling Jesus and keeping a few rules that are easy for them. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. The sovereign Lord is good of your life. Taste and see. Uh, eat deeply. Consume it says in the text in verse 16, walk in the Spirit or live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So love the Lord, you will not go there. So I pray that the love of, that loving Jesus will freshly grip your heart as you let this really brew in your heart. When you received salvation, 
You didn't just receive a Savior, but glory to God, you received a Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason you received Lord is because he knew that it was required to take charge of your life. We'd always wrecked our lives. I was thinking this week about what it would be like if we really all experienced the victory of this, victory over self, victory over sin, Christ formed, really formed in us? I mean, think about it. If self was put away, I mean, think how that would radically change your lives. We wouldn't have any more ornery, crotchety, cranky, critical people. You would never, it wouldn't matter to you if you didn't get what you thought you should get or whether you'd be willing to be wronged. If someone cut you off in the 401, you wouldn't be yelling and screaming at them in a rage. None of that would be, because it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be about self. Self would be gone. We wouldn't be anxious. We wouldn't be insecure. I mean, think about this. This is what Jesus Christ died to give you right now. For sin was gone. Think about it. Not having to fail God again and falling down on our knees in despair and guilt and shame. Not having our emotions and our physical body damaged by sin any longer. And if Christ was formed in us, be right-headed and right-hearted, right-directed, in the right place, the right spirit. Listen, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you can't be saved. And that's crucial, obviously. It's a starting point. But if you don't engage the Spirit of Christ, you can't be changed. Simple as that. As profound as that and as urgently important as that is. So let's bow our heads for final prayer. And, and is there anyone I can pray for this morning say, listen, this is really resonating with me and I so want to love the Lord with all of my heart. I know that's where I need to go. Is there anybody who says, just pray for me, Pastor? People are not going to look around. We're just saying, this, is, this matters to me right now. Okay, I'm seeing that all over. Listen, Lord, you, you see our hearts. You see our hands. You see our intentions. And Lord, the greatness of all of this is that your children have resident living in them the resident power of Jesus Christ, the love of God, is there and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus and now father we want to offer it to you in fullness Lord shape our lives to be like that what it would be like to love you with everything we have with every fiber of our being love our neighbors ourself fulfill the law and discard all of this external pathetic attempts at pleasing you with a few things that we can manage Oh, God, and it, it, it never sits right with us. May our hearts be filled with joy, contentment, fulfillment, blessing, knowing we're right with you because we love you with all of our heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.